0: Hello and welcome to the summer season of Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. The title of today's show is a quote from Patrick White's memoir, *Flaws in the Glass, in which he describes himself as more cat than dog, meaning more attached to places than to people. But that was just a smokescreen for a complex and difficult personality that was easily disappointed by relationships, apart from with the great love of his life, Manoli Lascaris, and perhaps also with his biographer, David Marr. I happen to notice that it's 30 years since Ma published his landmark biography of Patrick White, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1973, but said he would rather have won best in show for his efforts as a schnauzer breeder, one of the delicious and funny details that peppers this big, fat, juicy biography that is not nearly as daunting as you might think. It brings Patrick White, the curmudgeon, to vivid, multifaceted life. There is Patrick, the privileged scion of a landowning family, the self-loathing Australian, the unhappy student at Cambridge, the shy but committed activist, the discreet benefactor, the tricky friend, the painstaking host, the bitter son, the faithful lover and more. David Marr spent six years of his life on Patrick White and it seemed right to acknowledge this overlooked anniversary of its publication – I spoke to him in Sydney, where, as he warned me, he lives under a flight path. I began by asking him what would be different if he were undertaking the book now with both Patrick and his lifelong partner Manoli no longer alive.
1: Nothing. Nothing would change. And the ground rules of this exercise, and they weren't negotiated at the start, but they emerged over time, was that after I had sent the manuscript off, completed to the publishers in London, Patrick and Manoli could read it, and they were happy to correct mistakes. Now, I am not conscious of holding anything back whatever, because Patrick was running the show, He was leaving me completely free. He was not asking for any kind of veto, any kind of right to censor the book. But when Manoli read the manuscript, he asked me to make a couple of changes. And I did, because it was clear to me that some of his name-dropping about his relatives in Greece... Was embarrassing to him, perhaps inaccurate, and it didn't matter a damn to me. Um, and so, a few paragraphs about Athenian society post-war um, disappeared, and the book was no was no worse off for that. But the thing I, the thing that I had all the time were letters. Now, if your question had been. What would the difference be if you were writing about a contemporary subject? My reply would be that I doubted that I would have access to thousands of letters. God knows what's going to happen to all our emails, but I don't think they're going to survive. And yet, they're even better than letters in some ways. So immediate, so of the moment, so frank with one another, but they're not going to survive.
0: I'm just wondering about letters in general. Letters seem to be the backbone of biography. I think the American biographer James Atlas says that in his memoir, The Shadow and the Garden. Um, You encountered a possible frustration, I guess, in that after the biography was written, you came into access to several hundred more letters than you had That must have been really annoying that you suddenly had all this new material that you couldn't use.
1: No, I then did a book of his letters.
0: Well, yes, but you couldn't fold that material, let's say in terms of a cooking process. You couldn't add that to the basic dough by way of flavouring.
1: I didn't feel that any of the new letters changed the story. Um, Yes, it would have been gorgeous to have some of them. And yes, there were caches of letters, one in particular, that Patrick destroyed. Mm. Um, And I would have, you know, crawled over broken glass to get to those, but they were gone. And the thing about biography is that you can only use what you have. And my heart sinks whenever I read a biography that has the construction in it, must have, would have, um, which is the author's guesswork. Now, I'm not saying biographers don't do a hell of a lot of guessing. They do. But their guessing has to make sense on the basis of what is known. And my view is that readers actually respect a biography where there are gaps and where the biographer says, I don't know, I don't know what happened here. Um, instead of smothering it with some kind, of, um, some kind of jam to try to, you know, smooth over, smooth over what's not there.
0: I want to ask you whether you can remember how many hours you actually spent talking to Patrick.
1: What we did, particularly in the beginning, is that I would go over there to his house and we would talk, I would take notes. Um, I don't think I ever recorded him. I took notes and then I would scurry home and type out much longer versions of, um, of our conversations. As it became clear to me and with some trepidation clear to Patrick that letters had survived by the thousand, these are, you know, the standing, the standing order, his standing orders were that people were to destroy his letters. Um, alas, he did that at his end, and thank God others didn't do it at their end. Um, but as it became clear that these letters had survived in such quantity, the kind of detail that I had been searching for in interview was all there in letters. And it was also, of course, a wonderful test of memory, because for a year or so, Patrick and I had been talking about his early life, his time as a young man in London, his time in the war, um, his time back in Castle Hill when he arrived in Australia after the war. And then suddenly, I had his accounts, or not suddenly, gradually, I had his accounts, contemporary accounts. He had a good memory wasn't perfect. He had a good memory. Um, And that was reassuring for me as well. But, 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 we actually didn't do hundreds of hours of interviews.
0: Right. I'm astonished that you didn't, as a journalist, as a trained journalist, that you didn't record him.
1: Why didn't you record him? Because he was shy of being recorded. And because I knew that I could come back to him and check any quotes that I wanted to use, that if something had come up in our conversation, which would later be vital, I could check with him um, that I had it right. And, Caroline, I also had in those days a very, very good memory.
0: And what about Manoli then, um, David? How many hours did you spend
1: talking to him? Over the course of four or five years, I never tallied them, but but I would have spent oh you know a couple of dozen hours. Um, While Patrick was always Patrick, always wanted to know what I'd asked Manoli, what Manoli had said. (laughs) Uh, So it wasn't it wasn't um, you know particularly easy. Manoli's loyalties to Patrick were immense. But he was also a shrewd a shrewd guide to Patrick's flaws and strengths.
0: Well, talking of those, I'm wondering how you feel Patrick White has fared in the past 30 years since your biography because it seems to me that in some ways he's being sort of forgotten a little bit as the sort of ultimate dead white male. I mean, I was very pleased to see you on books that made us the other day, talking about him. It was great to have him included in that TV series. Uh, but at the same time, I do feel that he's completely fallen off the radar. Do you feel that?
1: I'm a bad judge of this because he hasn't fallen off my, my radar. The bastard is still growling in my head. I asked you, what Australian writer who was kind of famous, indeed world famous, in the 1950s and 60s, is still read. I mean, Christina Stead, The Man Who Loved Children, is one of the finest novels I've ever read. Um, You know, are people buying her books these days? And she's a white woman, and she's very dead, but the afterlife of novelists in all the cultures we're familiar with in, in America, in Britain, in the Anglo cultures, is pretty grim, actually. I mean, who of the towering English writers of the 60s and 70s is still widely read in Britain? Don't painters have it easy? You know, the great painters of the 1960s, 70s and 80s in Australia are hung in the galleries and we walk in there and in 10 minutes we can reacquaint ourselves with their masterpieces. But mm. reading The Tree of Man is a week's work. It's a wonderful, wonderful week's work, but it's a week's work.
0: I talked in this series earlier on to Heather Clarke, the biographer of Sylvia Plath, about her monumental 900-page, I think she just beats you there.
1: She beats me easily.
0: Um, Tome, Red Comet. And in that book, she gives a very balanced weight to a close reading of the text of Plath's work, and the life, and it seems to me that you touch quite lightly on the actual works. You don't delve in and give us a close textual analysis, and I was just wondering whether you could talk about the balance of the life and the literary content and how you judged that.
1: Well, Patrick White mattered because he was a a great writer. Um, He didn't matter because he was a famous public grump um, (laughs) or, you know... (laughs) an heir to a mighty rural empire or any of those things, but he, he mattered because he was a writer. My task as a biographer was to work out where the writing came from. Now, you never can work it out entirely. You can only talk about contribution and the world and the context, and you can talk about themes that recur in his work. But close textual reading of his work is the job of literary critics. And when I was writing the biography, there were lots of them doing lots of that. They didn't need me doing it. But I did have to convey my understanding of those works um, and their world, which was Patrick's creative world. And thus it was a balance. But you know, it's not something you sit down and think, now how am I going to balance this? You work it out in your head as you go along. And I really can't tell how I decided what it was going to do, but I, but there was one there was one thing that I did kind of carefully plan, and that was where I would position important discussions that emerged from his work on certain issues so while Homosexuality is a shadowy theme of his early novels, um, including his worst, um, The Living and the Dead. I decided that I would deal with it um, as a driver of his work and as as, as appearing in his work when I got to The Twyborn Affair. Um, and I made a couple of those decisions where I would wait until the best novel came along to illustrate that theme. But as for the balances I went along, I just, you know, you just stumble along and try to get it right.
0: said in articles that um, I read about writing the book that one of the challenges for you was to find a way not to be too soft on Patrick and also not to be too hard. So again, you know, this is about calibration. So we've just been talking about the sort of intuitive way that you weighted the literary content versus the life. And in terms of your, your attitude to him, the soft versus the hard, how did you do that? Was that also a very fluid, organic thing? Well,
1: the problem was, of course, that I came to adore him in the course of doing the book. But I came also to love his values. And one of the chief of his values was to be fearless and truthful. And I came to think, perhaps vainly, that I would let him down if I wasn't blunt, and I hope insightful, about those things which were terrible in his life. And there were terrible things in his life. And I hope that I made them absolutely clear. When he finally read it, when it was safely in the hands of Jonathan Cape in London, he said to me that he read much of it through tears,
0: So just let's go back to those tears for a moment, because he was a man absolutely devoid of sentimentality. What do you think those tears would have been about in terms of regrets?
1: I must correct you on sentimentality. He was grossly sentimental about dogs.
0: Oh, Oh, dogs. Yes. Okay. Well, I was going to come to dogs later, but okay.
1: Look, I don't know what those tears were. Um, I know that he regretted. One of his great faults was his way of dropping people. Terrible. Terrible, cruel. And I came to realise that one of the things he wanted from me was to go and talk to the people he had dropped, which I which I obviously would do. I mean, fundamental task of a biographer, to talk to the people the subject has fallen out with. But that he also... Wanted news of them.
0: That's quite poignant.
1: Mm, He wanted news of them.
0: Because it seems that at times he was incredibly petty. I mean, I think there's someone that he dropped because she wouldn't eat a cauliflower salad that he'd made. And you just think, why are you so short-fused and so intolerant of stupid things?
1: He had come to a decision in his own mind perhaps unconsciously, that that person's time was up. And the uneaten cauliflower salad is just, you know, he he required some kind of dramatic trigger to do this dirty work. And he looked around for it. And don't imagine that that was really the cause. He dropped people, sometimes because they had dropped their spouses. Yes. He couldn't... He could not bear or trust people who split up, but he became intimate friends with people in order to learn from them, fresh characters, fresh stories. And when they were, when they had yielded all they had to yield, they went even, even really, really intimate friends in the Jewish community up in the hills um, of Castle Hill um, they went
0: well. For example, I'm thinking of not speaking to Thea Astley for fifteen years because she made a judgment, I think, about Geoffrey Dutton that he found offensive.
1: And then he dropped Geoffrey Dutton for a number of reasons, but you know, the fundamental reason was for him that Geoffrey Dutton was not taking his own talent seriously. Mm-hmm and that he had become trivial. And yes, there was then the great breakup between Geoffrey Dutton and Ninette, his wife, and Patrick was intimate friends with both of them, and he just dropped Geoffrey like a stone. And then, I mean, I so admired Ninette Dutton. God, she was a woman. Um, He made it clear to... Ninette that he wished their friendship to continue. And she said to him, if a condition of that friendship is that I should despise my former husband, I do not want it. Mm. And they didn't. They didn't. She dropped him. Not many people dropped him.
0: No, they didn't. David, I'm interested, the word that he uses to describe his own nature or character or temperament is bitter. And bitterness is a very unappealing trait. Can you talk about the origins of that bitterness? I, I'm, I'm really curious about that.
1: That was a cover he used. I mean, he was actually a man full of sweetness and consideration and love, um, which he stuffed away into this carapace and... You know, glared out through that skull of his, and and kept people at bay, which an artist of his seriousness um, has to actually do. Um, he was bitter about a few things, but but the bitterness was was quite largely um, a way of shielding the sweetness in him. Um, he rightly loathed sentimentality. He, had a problem with dogs as we have mentioned but um he hid the softness and the sweetness in himself with a kind of theatrical performance mind you when the blasts were genuine they were horrifying
0: And you do say in the book, I don't know whether you're quoting him here or whether this is you, that he sought hostility as a spur to his art. So he needed to kind of stew and ferment in that kind of bitterness, didn't he? He used it as kind of compost, perhaps, for
1: the work. He was going to show they weren't right um, when he when they accused him of dot, dot, dot. Look, yes, and so he had this completely wonky um, argument that he was despised in his own country and loved abroad. Um, rubbish. He was hugely admired in Australia and hugely admired abroad. At least in his early career, uh, he was still, you know, he was still a world figure all the way to the end in the world of literature. But. Um, but it was his country that loved him most, and yet he was still he was still raging about you know how he was you know they, people didn't understand etc etc etc, and critics were vile etc etc etc. And yes, that was a spur to him demonstrating um, his immense talent um, and their stupidity. but really it was just. You know he wasn't seriously sitting at his desk day after day to prove some second rate critic in the bulletin wrong that wasn't his it, but it jeed him up
0: <laughs> it jeed him up. I have to ask you just you know the first line in your book is um a memorable image of a woman in a hat, and that's
1: plain his woman
0: mother. A plain woman in a hat. OK, so... Uh, a plain woman in a big hat. A big hat. Yes, that's right.
1: So... It took me three years to write that.
0: <laughs> OK, so i better quote it right. A plain woman in a big hat. Uh, and that, of course, is Ruth, his mother... And again, a bit like the sort of um, biography of Sylvia Plath, Aurelia Plath gets such a raw deal from her daughter and you get a correction to that in Heather Clarke's biography where you see how Aurelia did so much for her daughter. She had very little by way of resources, but she always allocated them to her daughter's wishes and desires. Now, Ruth may have been a snob, but why... Did he why did Patrick loathe his mother so much? But, as Manoli points out, he wrote to her every week.
1: Well, it was soon clear to me, when I began this work, that his mother was his greatest patron. His earliest patron, his greatest patron. His mother had wanted him to be a playwright like Goldsworthy, you know, somebody that would, you know, be a distinguished playwright in the West End. Um I found this extraordinary fact, in fact, it is the reason I wrote the biography, is that I was reading one day a book about a fascinating forgotten figure in Australian literature called Inky Stevenson. Now, Inky Stevenson was a publisher of Australian work in the 1930s, and he went on a very strange trajectory. He ended up an interned fascist during the Second World War. But Inky, in the the 1930s, was devoted to and a publisher of Australian writing, fine writing. And I discovered this detail in a book about Inky Stevenson, that Ruth and Dick White were his first investors. And the condition of their investment was that he publish the schoolboy poetry of their son, Patrick. (laughs) And it was when I read that detail, I thought, God, I'd like to read a a traditional biography. I'm going to write that book. You know, it it was a moment in which that set the next eight or 10 years of my life was that moment of discovery that what he said about his parents was bullshit. (laughs) And so from the beginning, I was fascinated by the, the figure of the of the of the mild, quiet father who disappeared to the bush every while, every bit, in a, you know, every every bit, every month or so, and the mother, and she was a horror, but she was a wonderful horror. Anyway, come the end of the biography, it's written, it's it's safe in the hands of Jonathan Cape, and I get a phone call from Patrick. He says, "Look, there are a few errors in it. I think we'd better go through it." And I said, "Oh, what what are the mistakes, Patrick?" And he said, "No, no, no come around." Come around and we'll, we'll sit with it. And I thought, oh, that's fair enough. And so I turned up next day at Martin Road and he was sitting there at the dining room table with page one of the manuscript open. Now, the manuscript was about 2,000 pages long. And he said, come on, we'll sit down and um, read it. And I thought, you know, well, he's going to find the mistakes. And then I realised that he was in fact going to read the whole book in front of me silently. And I I thought I would die. I mean, I, I couldn't take any more of this text. And he made me sit there over nine days, reading my work again. And it let me clean up a lot of mess but it also let me ask a number of questions. And one day I said to him, Patrick, you have to admit that your mother was your greatest patron. She was your inspiration. Why are you so hard on a woman who shaped your career? And he looked at me and he said, yes, but she wasn't your mother.
0: But do you think, for example, that they were two alike? I mean, she was funny in acid descriptions of vulgarity. That was something that he also did.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And he understood, and in fact, he said this to me, and I think he might have put it in writing in various places, that he understood that he and his mother couldn't live in the same city. And the fact that she'd run off to London after the war to leave this glorious London existence, which she had always planned in her own head. You know, she was a widower. She was rich. Um, quite a lot of the money, <laughs> quite a lot of the money from the white estates in the Hunter Valley went into re-roofing Glyndebourne, the opera house. <laughs> you know, Ruth was that kind of person. Um, and Patrick's decision to come back to Australia, which in a way is the crucial decision of his creative life. He came home when all of those painters and actors and singers were fleeing to Britain, some of them fleeing to America. He came home. And there were lots of reasons for that. But I think one of them was that Ruth had gone to London. He couldn't. He he adored London and, and he disappointed Australians a great deal when he when he was awarded the Nobel Prize, by saying, um, "Yes, but of course I'm really I'm a Londoner," <laughs> um, but he couldn't be there because Ruth was there. But he also had this immense ambition to be the writer Australia had never had.
0: And yet, David, in Flaws in the Glass, which I've just finished reading and which is just so fantastic, I had no idea how enjoyable that would be, but I just felt I should read it to sort of cross-reference in a way with your book, he calls his Australianness his
1: deformity. Well, his attitude to Australia was not straightforward, um, but he rather treasured that deformity. Mm. That was him. That deformity was him. Look, as a young man, I was, was one of those people who thought I would flee Australia and get out of here and lead a full and rich life, you know, in Europe somewhere, um, and discovered the truth, which is that I'm profoundly Australian and this is my home and this is where I had to be. And I think he had explored Britain and he knew he was not. British. He knew he was not. And that was probably a disappointment for him, which he never forgot. But he accepted what he was, even though perhaps that was not the first version of himself that he would have wished. But it's the version of himself that made him a writer, made him an artist.
0: Maybe so, but there are some things that are really jarring that it's difficult now to sort of imagine, and that's him jackarooing or attempting to farm. I mean, they're just preposterous in your imagination to sort of envisage him that way.
1: No, no, no not at all. Not at all. The world he came from expected young men, after they have been to Cambridge, to come home and deal with sheep <laughs> and... That was that world. And um, he never wanted to be part of that world, but he knew that it was a station that he had to be in for a little while. And he fell in love there. and that an unrequited passion, which is so beautifully described in the Twyborn Affair, um, But you know, he knew he was not going to stay there. Then he went back to England. And he explored, really, the life that his mother had imagined for him. His first, the first work he wrote was for the stage. Um, and his first successes were for the stage. But in the end, he found it bloodless. He found it bloodless. And in particular, he found Camp London Society essentially hideous. So he came home.
0: Wasn't he lucky, though, in Manoli? I mean, I had no idea until I read your book that Manoli not only could run the house, run a farm, create a garden, but was also his first reader. I mean, the degree of responsibility, the terrifying responsibility of being Patrick White's first reader, as well as his lover, as well as managing everything else. It just seems too much.
1: Um it was It was a giant task to which he devoted his whole life. I sat with Minoli a few days before Patrick died he was He was dying. We didn't know how how long there was and Manoli said to me, In a few days, I will discover what was him and what was me.
0: What did he mean?
1: He meant. That their lives were totally devoted to one another in everything they did, and that included the writing. Now, I was never able to discover whether Manoli had corrected the writing. I don't think he did, but I think, as I understand it, he gave Patrick his frank impressions of what he had read. And that helped Patrick. But they lived totally together. It was not, I'm not suggesting that it was a flawlessly happy relationship. It wasn't, but they were totally devoted to one another. And, and it may seem absurd that they, <laughs> that they went and got a little farm on the outskirts of Sydney at this place called Castle Hill. But in a way that that's what a lot of people did after the war. They wanted to get back to the soil. They wanted to do something decent and clean and good. Um, Then, by chance, about a mile away, over a couple of hills, were were some extraordinary Jewish refugee families. And they just fell into each other's arms. And he he found Europe. He found a Europe in the hills behind Sydney.
0: You used the word correct when you were talking about Manoli's possible role in terms of the manuscripts. In his professional interchanges, exchanges with publishers, he was very, very resistant to corrections and to editing. Why do you think that was?
1: Because he had put his heart and soul into every word.
0: Yes, but you and I know, you and I know that even the greatest writers can benefit from editing.
1: No, they can be saved by editing. (laughs) Um, I know that was not Patrick's view. However, he had editors that he talked to during the course of his writing. So Hoops, his great editor in New York, was a a presence in his imagination throughout his writing. I mean, great editors are... um, I'm stumbling along working for a great editor at the moment and he's in my mind as I, you know, as I try to work out what I'm doing. But for Patrick there was this sense in him that every word was right. I don't know at what stage he absolutely refused changes. I think he was always happy to be to be alerted to errors. Um if only the bastard had pointed out the mistakes in my german in the first printing of my book but there you go but but he insisted on his voice in his words
0: biographer David do you feel the talismanic power of objects associated with your subject whether that's a jacket they might have worn or a pen or other things that were in their possession because many biographers obviously in the school of Richard Holmes in particular acknowledge this as an important element of their uh, desire to immerse themselves fully in in the mind and in the life of of their subject, does that stuff resonate for you?
1: No, um, I, I haven't collected Patrick White memorabilia, um, and when people offer me Patrick White things, I, I, I I'm not keen really to take them. Manoli did give me one of Patrick's worst ties, a completely horrible, but but flamboyantly, marvelously horrible paisley tie, and. Um, Recently, a friend of mine, a lawyer, who I just owe huge thanks to for fixing up some problems, Um, I thought, what shall I give him? And I gave him Patrick's tie, and I tried to explain to him why this hideous garment meant so much. And I think I think he might have understood. I don't know. But I haven't got. I haven't got. I mean, Manoli gave me a little mug. Um, that's on my desk here that used to hold pencils on Patrick's desk and it holds pencils on mine. But that's it, you know.
0: No, I'm interested in that because at one stage Patrick says he uses a beautiful phrase in Floors in the Glass. He says that for much of his life he was more... He felt more for houses and places than he did for people, and he uses the phrase, I was more cat than dog. I was just wondering whether you now wish, in retrospect, that Patrick's house had been saved as a museum, and here I'm talking obviously about the house in Centennial Park.
1: I'm glad it wasn't, actually. I'm glad it wasn't. I was upset at the time when it seemed that everything was in place for it to be kept as a museum. But house museums are such dead places. Have you been to one lately? Yes,
0: well, that's what I was asking you really about, about this talismanic quality. When you go to a house museum, do you think this is completely fake and phony?
1: No, I don't, but, but I think it's extraordinarily empty. Um, the more complete a house museum is, the more absent its owner seems.
0: I don't know. Have you been to Jane Austen's house and seen the small hexagonal table by the window where she wrote?
1: No, I haven't. And that might make me break down completely. It
0: did. It made me cry. You know, the modesty of that table, the uh, source of the light, the, the, the everything about it is just, it's just overwhelming.
1: But I think I would also start raging about that bitch of a sister of hers, that vile, vile fucking bitch. Who burnt her diaries.
0: Well, excuse me. Everybody in those days burnt everything. I don't care. Everybody.
1: I don't care. I don't care. The world would be a better place with Jane Austen's diaries. But that's perhaps a digression.
0: Yes, it is. I mean, and Cassandra and Jane loved each other devotedly. And Patrick made two bonfires, I think, of papers in his life. Um, Okay, he did it himself. But I mean, let's face it, from the 18th century on, there is a great tradition right up to Helen Garner of burning things that biographers would find priceless.
1: I'm a biographer. You asked me earlier whether I became infuriated by marvellous letters turning up too late once the book had been done. No, that's not what infuriated me. But a mixture of fury and delight to discover 10 years after Patrick's death that his marvellous, marvellous agent, Barbara Mobbs, had not burnt the papers in the desk. (laughs) Ah! (laughs) Patrick had said, burn the papers in the desk. But Barbara, who's a fine and discreet woman, Mm. decided that she would shut up about the presence of those papers for 10 years. And then, on behalf of the charities that that Patrick left his whole estate to, she would sell them to the National Library. And I got a call. I got a call one day from the National Library asking if I would be interested in coming down and helping them sort the papers from Patrick's desk. Uh. <laughs> God there were some things he had shown me, um, papers and diaries from his time during the war, which are beautiful and crucial and then there were the unpublished writings, one of which Barbara and I worked to get published um the first third of a novel, which he never completed, but which is in the most gorgeous and complete form in itself as a novella, which I was, I mean, it's astonishing kind of to find yourself as a kind of a ghost in the background on such a, an enterprise. Um, and there were things there that, that changed my understanding of, of one or two things, and I had to decide whether I would Go in and change the biography, and I decided that I wouldn't, that it would stand as it was, and instead I wrote about the discoveries. I wrote essays about the discoveries.
0: Sex was very important to him, wasn't it?
1: It was and and it was also i mean one of the one of the themes of the book that i loved following is one familiar from my own family um i had a gay uncle um who uh, a very elegant and distinguished man and he had a very elegant and distinguished partner and they lived in they came back to live in australia in the 1960s and and They were totally part of our family and nobody mentioned the fact that they were gay. So Patrick and Manoli are, you know, in Sydney society from the late 1940s at a time of, you know, quite hysterical anti-gay madness. And they just were who they were. They didn't talk about it. They were who they were. And, um... I admired that. I'd, I still admire it as a way of a rather aristocratic way of dealing with um, dealing with being homosexual, and it's a theme in it's a theme in his work. But yes, he, I think that a good deal of his passionate anger about couples staying st- that they must not break up, that they must stay together is that he had no conception of how he might go out and hunt for sex as a single man. No conception. This was, you know, his sex life was, his life was Manoli. And um, again, I'm not arguing that it was a, you know, a flawlessly happy life, but that's, that's what made it dignified and possible
0: One of the great sort of climaxes of the book, of your biography, is the rift with Sidney Nolan and the build up to that, of course, is this incredible sort of um, falling in love with Nolan that precedes it. So, you know, the friendship with Nolan is so intense. It begins in such an unlikely place in Florida. And it it is such a kind of extraordinary bond that they forge, um, both as artists and as people. And then, of course, inevitably, there is a rift. And it is around exactly what you're saying, the idea of a couple breaking up. Can you just talk a little bit about um, how you approached writing about that?
1: Straightforwardly. (laughs) Um, uh, Of course... He he first knew Sidney Nolan earlier than Florida. They were just meeting up in Florida. He first met Sidney Nolan in the David Jones Art Gallery in Sydney, where he saw Nolan's um, Central Australian paintings as he was writing Voss. And he fell in love with his work and then with the man. And Nolan was beautiful, charming, flirtatious in a way, um, and he was a rising star of the art world. And Patrick asked him to do the cover for Voss. And um, he's very disappointed with the cover because earlier sketches had sh- had shown a savage man of exactly the kind that Patrick had in mind for Voss. And the later sketches were softer, kinder, but still an extraordinary image. Um, but the Nolan story was, again, Patrick beginning to feel that he was wasting his talent as well as betraying his wife. And, mm. and he had always loved Cynthia, her, her total kind of um, arrogant self and the self-possession of the woman and the, the zest of the woman. And he was shattered by her suicide so it was messier than just a marital split up. It was really messy, made messier by the hideous drawings that Nolan then published, um, representing um, Manoli as a dog waiting to be fucked. Um, I thought that Nolan really revealed himself in those drawings and I'm glad to see Nolan's reputation. No, let me put it another way. I'm glad to see Nolan's paintings fade. They are fading.
0: You, you've you said that, in a sense, Patrick gave you a kind of courage about your own life, and I'm just wondering, you know, you got quite emotional back there for a moment, which was very moving, actually. I'm just wondering, does he haunt you? Do you miss him, and have you ever dreamt about
1: him? Um, yes, I suppose I have dreamt about him, Um in those dreams I have where some task just simply can't be done, he, he does haunt me. And he, he said to me one day, "Ah, oh, David, your charm. And he's right. You know, I, I do use charm where I should be much more explicit, where I should be much tougher and upfront. But he's made me, he's made me um, believe in sticking to your guns. In a way, his whole life was about sticking to his guns.
0: But because he was so fearless about being unpopular and he was very arch and waspish, did he also give you the courage to be bitchier?
1: Um, look, I've always been a bit bitchy. Um, and... Self-control in public has not always been one of my distinguishing features, but he was a demonstration that a bitch—and he was a magnificent bitch—could um, all be also be someone of great judgment and compassion. But but you know, for me, his great lesson for me is sticking to your guns, sticking to your guns.
0: The acknowledgements in this monumental book run to four pages of individuals. After he completed it, David went on to edit White's letters, immersing himself once again in the life of this often misunderstood contrarian. Since then, no other life has captured David Maher sufficiently for him to attempt another in-depth whole-of-life biography, although he has since written shorter biographical profiles of politicians and other public figures. Patrick White casts a very long shadow. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. The show is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Louise Osborne. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land and to elders past and present. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown and are licensed by Pilly IP.